0: Swatter Tuesday last week you took yourself into the Royal Commission into Mental Health and you were the very very first witness Yep. Firstly, before we get to the day itself, how did it come to pass that you were asked to speak? How does the well, process work? That's,
1: well, I was um, contacted through my management company to see initially whether or not I'd be interested, and uh, I said yes. I think it was a really—it's—it's it's a historic thing that's happening with the Royal Commission for Victoria, first state around the country to have a Royal Commission into mental health, the sector, and the way that we've applied it. So I was given that opportunity and about three weeks ago I was invited to sit down with a couple of barristers and a junior lawyer in their offices and the lady who was responsible for the interview took me through, invited me to share my journey and that gave her the brief and then fronted up on Tuesday and the reason for the previous interview... Was that the barrister was able to then lead me where she wanted me and the particular things from my experience she wanted me to share with the commissioners, which we did. How did you feel walking in and, and okay. what is the setup? It's a very well, formal well, situation. It was at the Melbourne Town Hall, and I, look, it, it's, it's a big deal, right? This is really important for Victoria and the people who are living with these conditions, but I must admit, Howie, that. When I walked into the uh, main doors of the town hall and there were security guards everywhere and there was a security machine and they would frisk you and you had to take everything out and then I would walk through, you had security people with you, you had uh, staff that were associated with the Royal Commission, you weren't left alone and I walked upstairs and I saw the room where the hearing was going to be held and I texted my wife and I said this is a bit more serious than what I gave it thought for. Right. Yeah, so it it was like a courthouse. Um, and uh, I, w- I was nervous, but once we got into it, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. It was how great long, to be a
0: part of how it. How long did you speak for? Uh, about
1: 45 minutes.
0: And how emotional was it to get up in front of people no, you don't know and it, tell no, your story No, it like wasn't
1: that? because um, I've been doing it for a long time, so I was really comfortable with it. I, I'm humbled to think that I've been one of 91 um, uh, people that have been invited and given the privilege to contribute to such an important event for the sector and the people who are living with it. And some of the people, Pat McGorry, former Australian of the Year, runs Origin Youth Health, Georgie Harmon, who's the CEO of of Beyond Blue. After I did my presentation, there was a young girl who was 22 who has had her own challenges, and she was really nervous and quite emotional, but uh, I had the pleasure of meeting her after her presentation and gave her a big hug and said that she should be really proud of herself. And, and, and this is really important that we have people that have lived experiences contributing to the Royal Commission, because it's those stories which will give the insight to the commissioners that then allow them to make the recommendations that they will at the end of this year. And most importantly, the state government have already come out and said they'll endorse every single recommendation uh, in at some stage of 2020.
0: I noticed you talked about relating different stories. Obviously, the story that you related that has enormous cut-through is when you talk about being on the premiership podium, which is yep. a story that you've told us uh, a couple of times off-air, I think. Mm. But but just, just relay it back to people that might not have heard it because it's a story, I think, that fully explains what you're going through.
1: Well, we were just part of a... We just became a premiership team with Duck and 21 other teammates and... Um it's. It, I mean, I can say this now, Harry, it's, it's the greatest sporting moment of my life. Mm-hmm. It was a Mount Everest. We just put the flag on top. Um, but that comes with the, I say that now because of the benefit of maturity, growing up and doing a lot of work on my mental health. But the truth of that day was that, yes, I'd just become a premiership player, got my medal from Jack Dyer. Um, there were two people that were at the ground that day, my wife and my doctor, Harry Younglick, who Duck's know, Duck knows really well, and Rocket probably knows him as well. Um, they were the only two people that knew the truth because the truth of that day was a 27-year-old guy had just become a premiership player, but that same 27-year-old guy had been living with mental health conditions for three years and was broken. Similar to Dame Beams, I'm assuming, and I had the capacity to play and play okay, become a premiership player, but personally, I was thinking about how I could end my life because I was broken. Can I just ask one question, Swatter? How did you feel on the morning of a game? Jay, did you have the uptick then or were you...? I, I was diagnosed after 97 games of footy, so I was vice-captain to duck. I was five years in, into my career. So I played the remaining 186 games of my footy career, including some with Rocket at Sydney. I've never said this uh, to Rocket or in this, in this environment. But I played the majority of those 186 games of footy, physically there, but emotionally I was not. And from the 9th of August 1993 until the end of the 1997 season, I did one of two things. At training or at games, I'd get there as late as I could. I wouldn't talk to people because I couldn't. And I'd walk into Harry's room, I'd close the door and I'd lock it. I'd just start crying. I did that for four years with him. Cheaper. Because I didn't, have, I didn't feel that I could do what I needed to do and I didn't want to do what I felt I had to do because I was really struggling. But thankfully, that great man just kept me engaged. I never missed a training session, never missed a game of footy. Best and fairest, premierships, state of origin games, all Australians. I was able to achieve all of that whilst living with these type of conditions. When you said you'd arrive late because you couldn't talk to people, yeah. What does that
0: mean? Why couldn't you talk to them? What how, was
1: preventing you? How, does, how, how, how do you as a man talk to other men, coaches, teammates, who are strong men, about vulnerability, about fear? And what's really important, what was important to me, I don't know about Duck and, and Rocket's um, position on this, but what was really important, I compromised my health for 12 and a half years because the most important, to me, the most important thing to me was, not my health, but that my coach respected me and my teammates respected me. That was the single greatest thing that I did everything I could to make sure that Duck respected me as a player, as a teammate, as an opponent. Rocket respected me as a player who played under him because the fear was that if either of these guys knew or anyone else knew what I was living with, then they would judge me and lose respect. And that was something I was never prepared to compromise. And unfortunately, I invested so much into those people and those things. I didn't have anything to invest in myself, and that's why it became a bigger struggle.
2: So, looking back now, um, do you wish that you had a... Oh, sp- desperately. Yeah, so I therefore, was your thought that, say, myself or teammates, they'd view you differently? Yep. But you'd probably know now that there'd be support and understanding and help.
1: Yeah, there were games, Rocket, where you... And I heard about one game. There were games where I played under you. I didn't want to play. I didn't want to be there.
2: I heard you turned up one day in at the car park and yep. phoned someone to come out and can't play. Yep. And you're crying. Yeah, And you come in and got three votes.
1: Yeah, I no, It's crazy, right? It's, yeah. It just
2: shows... I'm, not, I'm not saying... I'm yeah. just I'm not saying, oh, you should have played. No, i Why... Which...
3: This is why this is such an important message. Because I still think that there's that stigma, mm. us as men, you know, that we try to try to hide our feelings or think that it's weak if we show our feelings and the more we show our feelings and be vulnerable the more that the message gets across I was convinced to else. I'd
1: lose respect and if people didn't respect me and they thought that I was weak they wouldn't want to play me They wouldn't want to play with me. And the interesting thing, sorry, Duck, the interesting thing was, I've talked about this a lot, but I made six phone calls the day before my story went to print thanks to Mike Sheen in 2006. And I rang six mates, and four of them you'll know Glenn Arch, Anthony Stevens, Ian Fairley, and Anthony Rock. So for 12 and a half years, with Duck, I spent a lot of time with Duck socially, and all of those players, for 12 and a half years, there were so many times I'd be on the verge of crying wanting to say what was going on, but never never trusted myself to do it, never trusting these guys to support me like I'd hoped that they would. So I rang those guys the day before it went to print because I felt they deserved to hear it from me, than read it in the paper. And the interesting thing was, which answers Rocket's question, Rocky was filthy on me, absolutely filthy on me. Arch was disappointed. Steve-O and Flossie were always supportive. And the thing that Rocky was really disappointed uh, with me about was the fact that I never told him. Because he goes, I'm your mate. I would have always supported you. So to have that and to hear that, you go. That's, I mean, that's all I can ask for. But if I had my time again, I'd tell my coach, I'd tell my captain, I'd tell my teammates, I'd tell my, doc- I'd tell everybody I needed to do, because I carried this tremendous burden unnecessarily because I never trusted the key people in my life. It, they'd respect
3: me. is that still the toughest message? Because I would, I, I don't know whether I'm right or wrong, but you, you work in the space. Do you reckon there's still big majority of men out there that still are not prepared to do what you're saying now?
1: 100%, duck. Yeah. And, unfo-
3: and this, this is part, of my, still, this is part still of my motivation. Seen as a, it's still seen as a weakness.
1: Yeah. yeah I, I, see, I see the damage and the destruction because I work in this space during the week. I see the difficulty that men are struggling with on a daily basis because the notion of what it means to be a man. So it's their perception, isn't it? It's, it's their perception, perception, but it's also the reception that they get the response that they Boy, get they're from they're other right people, account. especially other men in their lives, yeah. which means that what they do is they don't ask for help. No. Swatter, without
0: digging too far into it, what does it feel like? When you're in a situation where you don't want to face people and you bring yourself to a point where you're close to you, tears, like, describe the feeling
1: of what's going on. Shame, guilt, embarrassment, and an overwhelming sense of hopelessness, because I didn't think that this situation would ever get any better And the thing that... And I don't say this to overplay it. I mean, my experience, Howie, is just my experience. It's no better or no worse. It's just my experience. But the reason why I've made a decision to speak so openly about the journey is not so much that I want to tell people my story, but I want to share my story because I believe that by sharing it, you actually allow other people to begin to make different decisions and not make the mistakes that I made. But the thing that kept me paralysed for 12 years, 12 and a half years was losing the respect of people that I was involved in. And if I lost respect, I'd lose those relationships. And that's the thing that frightened me the most. So what did Dr. Harry Unglick say to you when you
0: went in, locked the door, mm. and here's a doctor who's probably ahead of the curve a little bit? Yeah. What on earth did he say? I, I, I
1: can't tell you, Jay, the number of times that I was in tears as Ducks Vice-Captain at the MCG, at Arden Street, any, uh, any ground where I'd walk in and I'd just say to him, mate, I can't do it and I don't want to do it. Let me go. Just please let me go. I just don't have the energy for this. And, and this is why this man is a man that I love as much as my my father because he never failed me. I'm sure that I pushed that relationship to the point of him, he's never said this, but he's probably questioned, you know, I don't know if I can keep doing this. But he fronted up. He never gave up. He never lost hope. And he's got this beautiful nature where he just kept me engaged. And for, for, for you know, the greatest thing that, I'm proudest of is I'm a premiership player, best of first, of all that sort of stuff. I was able to perform at the elite level whilst living with three consecutive mental health conditions and the reason I put that down to is that my wife and, and my doctor were able to keep me engaged and I was able to perform and achieve. So what I know being a premiership player is very, very important
0: to you. Yeah. How would you reflect back oh, this is, I'm not even
1: sure this is the right question to ask but if you'd gone away from football? I tried. The day I was diagnosed, 9th of August, 1993, Rach, my wife, Harry. I was in Harry's room, and I said to him, mate, give me six months, I'll, I'll, I'll sort myself out, give me six months, and I'll come back. What I was really saying, and I, I didn't realise this at the time, but I've reflected on it, what I was really saying was, I don't want to deal with this, so let me go. I wanted to walk away. But again, Harry made a decision that day, he goes, no, the structure of training and playing is going to be really important in your rehabilitation. And it was, but I waited six years. So I was at Sydney, second year under Rocket, June of 1999. I'm away to become an All-Australian for the first and only time, win my third best and fairest. So still performing, still achieving, but six years after the day Harry diagnosed me, I I made a decision that I needed to ask for help. So reflecting back on it now,
0: and we'll we'll, we'll move on after this, if in 93 you had walked away... You wouldn't then be a premiership player.
3: Well, I would have won another couple of
0: beers. (laughs) You would
1: have.
0: You You, you wouldn't be a premiership player. No. So how how do you juggle
1: all that into the mix? Um, To be honest with you, Howie, I've never been asked that question. I've never really thought about it. What I do think about and what I'm eternally grateful for, I see Harry regularly every second or third week. Every time I see him, I tell him I love him. And I tell him how grateful I am of him. And I do the same thing every time I present. And I present 70 or 80 times a year around mm. the country. I'll, I'll go home or I'll ring my wife and I'll go, thank you. Because without those two people, my life could have been very different. And I'm, I'll be forever grateful for those two people, as well as everybody who's played a role in my career and, 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 and post-career. But my wife and, and my doctor kept me alive. And I'm... Yeah forever thankful
0: lifeline 13 11 14 if you're experiencing any problems the obvious question from now people are going to listen to this and think yep that's me what's the first step pick up
1: the phone well first thing is to tell someone in your family that you trust be honest with them and then very quickly after that if you haven't already pick up the phone and go and see a gp be honest with the gp about what's happening in your life because when you do that, you give the GP and your family an opportunity to be able to
3: make more informed decisions to be able to support you in healthy mate. Swatter, if there's not a bigger endorsement than this, you talk about men's men. And that's the thing. When you, you, you know, we all, and like you said, vice captain, Cap, you know, you, Mark Rusciuto's, uh sitting in the car listening to this, and he goes, I can't get out of the car. Now, there's a man's man, you know, who's... And people, and you know what I mean? They,
1: he's been, Rue's been, been a, so you'd a listen, great supporter, though. So
3: this, but what? what that's what I'm saying, Swatter. You, you, you've, you, these people have these personas, yet here's Rue, who knows the story, and he's sitting in a car going, I can't get out of the car. This is great. i just got to listen to this. And it it just goes to show you, for anyone out there listening right now, that, you know, you put your hand out, Swatter. Yep, absolutely. Well said, Duck. Yeah. Well said. But I think, too, you talk about,
2: and it's, the, obviously the mental state, but the, your thought process when you're at the time and what's your priority, your priority was getting respect, but now how much respect you've got by actually yeah. being it's, open it's, and being it's, honest.
1: It's re- and It's really interesting you say that. A mate of mine who was at the footy with yesterday sent me a beautiful text message last night and I got a number of text messages due the week from a whole host of people, including some people here. I spent most of my footy career trying to get respect and fit in, trying to be somebody I really wasn't and that bothered me greatly. It I, I'm more universally accepted now because of who I am. I'm but
3: don't, but don't but
2: I think your acceptance, having known you when I was at North Melbourne as well and then I was at uh, Kangaroos, it was such a big priority to get respect and what yeah. people thought of you yeah. that it was over the top, it was yeah. too far yeah. and I think whether... Obviously it was a mental health But I thought it was just insecurity I thought there was yeah, an insecurity But
1: aren't athletes but always yeah, that?
2: You know yeah, what? Yeah, yeah but it was off the scale insecurity yeah, okay. Because you, the way you played And the way you trained and, yeah. and the way you went about it You had enormous respect But it was something in your mind It that was probably never
3: enough It's a fake want, world It's a fake world When you're an athlete Howie It really is And I often you Think about your life That world you live in Rock It is In it it a lot is. of ways yeah. It's fake Because you're in a bubble It's yeah. fake bravado because you go out onto the ground and you try to be someone you're really not. Yeah, I'd, I'm, I'm certainly not an arrogant, cocky. You know, per, but on the ground I probably was, <laughs> and and off the ground I don't think I am at all. So you know, you're you you, you you're putting across something that you're actually not. So you, it's it is it like it's a like fake. You're it's a fake world. Yeah, and yeah. then you, and then you. Get outside that, and then you're in the real world.
1: The 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 other thing. Look, I appreciate this chat. I really do. Um, the thing that I do want to get to get across to people, Howie and, and boys, I can honestly sit here now saying that I am so grateful for my experience because I'm a better person. I have an appreciation of my strengths and my stresses and the things that I need to do to manage and maintain my well-being. So without that, I wouldn't have that perspective or that toolbox. And without that experience, I wouldn't be able to do the work that I really love, which is, with Pucker Up, changing lives positively and saving lives. So if I didn't have that experience, as tough as it was, I wouldn't be doing the thing that I really love doing the most now. You've got got young kids. Yeah, three of them. And
0: uh, we're still lucky enough to be at the age, Jay as well. Duck as well. Rocket, your kid's are a little bit older. We're at the age with young kids where they still look up to you and think you are 100% bulletproof and perfect. Yeah. How'd you go talking to the kids through the week about what you were going to do and then they would have seen you on the news?
1: Yeah, no, the kids have been on this journey for a while. So my wife and I to her credit is we proactively have these conversations. Um, we've been having them for years. How do you have that with your kids? Just open dialogue. Um, my kids, I mean... <laughs> My kids, my twin daughters will turn 16 this month. All of their schoolmates, especially their marmites, all they've got to do is punch in my name on Google. And there's my story. So they're aware of that. So we proactively have discussions. And it's really about discussions about their mental health and their well-being. So in our house, it's very open. Health means physical and emotional. But we invest a lot of time into the emotional conversations. And in particular, my son who's 12, I proactively sit down with him Much to his frustration, he's at the grunting stage now, but I proactively sit down with him, if not every week, every second week, and I'll openly have discussions with him and conversations about being emotional, having the ability to talk and having the ability to show all of his emotions, including crying, because I think that's really important for kids, that when they're emotionally connected, when life sits them on their backside at some point, they just think it's normal. We don't want our next generation of men growing up in this world that says well that's not how a man's meant to behave that's not true that is exactly how men are meant to behave and if we can do that we'll limit the number of men who are thinking about ending so Swatter,
2: what do you say to that mate that you've got who you're not sure about what do you say to him
1: i'll ask well I, I'm, I'm probably the wrong person to ask jay-z because i have those conversations all the time but if i'm worried about any of my male um, influential men in my life i'll have honest conversations how are you and if I don't think it's the right answer, I'll say, don't bullshit me. Let's have an honest discussion. I'm not here to judge you. I'm just here to help you and understand what's going on so that we can start to make some decisions to support you. And what's interesting is if you ask somebody, how are you going, the second or third time you ask that same question within about 30 seconds, invariably, in most cases, the first answer is different from the second answer.
2: Yeah. I think, I think the main message I'm hearing, I'm not the main message, but one of the messages And we've got to get it across to males and at sport, I'm thinking initially, but to kids, it's okay to have weaknesses. It's okay to have frailties. It's human nature. We don't have to put up the veneer that, oh, I've got to be a man and this is what people expect of me because people aren't expecting that of you. Because we've all got got weaknesses. We've all got things we've got to improve. We've all got doubts. Um, we've got insecurities, and I think that's the message I'm hearing. And say so it's okay, it's okay to do that. And if it's really bad in your own mind, be able to go have a chat to someone and talk about
0: it. Just to put a full stop on this conversation with you, daily, weekly, monthly now,
1: how are you tracking? I'm flying. Life's good. Right. Last year, two bouts of anxiety, which were really challenging, but I talked to my wife, my GP, my dad, tell my chairman tell the key people in my life went back on medication and got things under control. If I I don't think I I don't need to be cured and I don't need to be fixed because I'm not broken and I don't need curing. But what I do now is I invest considerable effort and energy into making making sure that I am maintaining and managing my well-being. In the future if that happens again, I'll deal with it, but I'm okay with that. So if if you come in here on a Sunday and yeah. you're normally really up, yeah. but you're not. What do we do as blokes around you in that situation? Uh, you just do your job. I don't expect to be treated differently um, I, I don't want people thinking that we've got to behave or talk differently what, 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 one of the great lessons out of this Howie for me is that because I never told those people in my network I never gave them the opportunity to do th- two things one make a choice mm. do they want to support me and help me and secondly how could like I, I'm, I'm sure that I might have been a bit of a handful to try and coach at various times but I never gave Rocket or Dennis Pagan uh, in fairness, I never gave them the opportunity to understand what I was dealing with and then make more informed decisions about how they could choose to support me. And that's one of the things that I regret is that my coaches and my teammates, if I was ever in that situation, I'll never get it again, but if I could go back to the day that I was diagnosed, I'd tell them all because then they could understand what I was going through and then they could choose as to how they would support me. You're a good man. No, we love you, you, Thank you, boys. Love you,